This is one of those more difficult, not, not necessarily difficult to understand, but it's, it's, it's one of these passages that as it's approaching, I'm, I recognize that this, this is going to cause possibly tension, maybe not necessarily here, could be here, could be outside. Oftentimes I get notes from people that aren't even a part of our church that will listen online or something. And, and this is one of these texts that I'm like, ooh, how do I handle this? I, I understand what it's saying, and then how do I articulate, how do I express it in ways that we can understand? I've been sort of wrestling with this. Then last week, thankfully, with the election, I was able to buy another week with this text because I took a detour. But as we begin to go to this section, John begins with this phrase that he's used throughout. And he says, beloved. And these, these, this term of endearment will, will often surface as he begins to, uh, to address a new subject or he's going to kind of go down a different direction. We see it again in verse 7 that he says, beloved. Um, and, and so I, I, that's why I chose these six verses. Um, as we read beloved, we're reminded of who wrote this. It's the apostle John. He's this elderly man. He's the last of the apostles who walked and, and talked with Jesus. He was of the apostles. He was one of Jesus's closest uh, of friends. He was like a kid brother to Jesus. Uh, there was James, John, and Peter that had very intimate access to things that Jesus said and taught. They were given special privileges that the other apostles didn't have. It was John who cared for Mary until her death um, as, as her own son because Jesus on the cross, that was one of his last commands to him. This is a man who was radically changed over the course of his life. When we look at the Gospels, he's a young, young man. Now we see him as a 95-year-old man uh, nearing the end of his life. The only remaining person who had a first-hand account with Jesus. And he sees the church developing. And he loves them deeply. And in this section, he begins with a warning, a, 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 a word of caution. And he starts with this. He says, do not believe every spirit. This word spirit is pneuma. It could be referred to as the Holy Spirit. But it's this idea of, hey, you as believers, there's a lot of spiritual stuff out there. Uh, Don't just think, oh, it's spiritual. I should follow it because I follow Christ. Uh, When we see this, uh, I'm reminded that to look back at the big picture of the Bible we see in the scriptures that the scripture says there's this physical world, the things that we can see and touch and, and, and look at and sort of examine. But this, the Bible also talks about this, this world that happens uh, sort of under the surface, the spiritual world, the things that we can't see, that angels fell from heaven and there's supernatural things sort of happening that we can't see, we might be able to sense, but we don't exactly know what's going on. And in this spiritual realm, there's both good and evil, and they're at war with one another. One of the authors, Frank Peretti, wrote the, a couple of books, this present darkness and piercing the darkness and a couple other. And then he writes kids' books on the side. And, and his, this, 
fiction book he wrote was sort of an examination of uh, of somebody's life but then gave glimpses into the spiritual realm that was happening under the surface is is very sort of sobering and and eye-opening as he presents this and so john starts out with this 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 command of almost negativity of you who follow christ don't believe every spirit he, he's giving this warning already in this book if you'll turn back with me to chapter two i want to examine some warnings that he's already given one of the the, the purposes of first john is is to to help the the believers get their guard up and in first john chapter two verse 18 he says children it is the last hour and just as you heard that the antichrist is coming even now many antichrists have appeared from this we know that it is the last hour they went out from us but they were not really of us for if they'd been of us they would have remained with us but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us and so he kind of says listen as we've as we've grown within within the ranks of orthodox christianity those who believe the truth there were individuals within this group who departed from the teaching and they began to lead people away. And as we went through this section, however many weeks ago it was, the thing that struck me is in our culture, when we hear the Antichrist, we sort of have this big picture of, of the boogeyman and, and that this person is going to be so obvious and so unattractive and so fearful. But really, in its most basic term, this term that only John uses, Antichrist, is just one who's opposed to Christ. And they, they go about teaching things against the scriptures about who Jesus is. And as the scripture talks about the Antichrist, that this spirit is actually very appealing. And it's not something that would jump out at you. So he warns them already as we turn uh, or we just skim a couple verses down to verse 26 in the same chapter. He says, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. That as the Christians are trying to follow Christ, there are those who are actively trying to to get them off course, to to change the gospel that they've heard. Turning over to 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. It's actually still on my same page. And he says, little children, this saying, this term of endearment. As a father, I think of my children, how you 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 explain to them, listen, these things are dangerous to you. Listen to my words. You might not understand me. And as a kid, when I was growing up, I'd get all these warnings. I say, what do you know? You don't know you're talking about. That won't be that bad. And then you do all this foolish stuff that really does have consequences. And I see John saying, listen. There are those that are trying to deceive you. They're going to come. They will look innocent, just like Jesus said. They're wolves dressed in, what is it, sheep's clothing. You think that they're harmless, but they're going to devour you. And he says in verse 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And he goes on to explain this stark contrast in our world. And as he enters in, to chapter 4, verse 1, where we are. And he says, do not believe every spirit. As I 
reflected on this first phrase in the last two weeks, I, I started asking myself, well, how does spirituality develop in our culture? Um, and, and the more I thought about it, the more I, I looked around and, and recognized that in our culture, to be spiritual is okay. To, to, it's almost even encouraged to say, oh, uh, we're one nation under God. Oh, God bless you when you sneeze. Um, l- little things, even outside of Christianity, it's, it's totally okay. But when we start narrowing the focus of what spirituality is, is when we start coming against friction. And I, I to, to sort of do a, a sampling to say, hey, am I... Am I am I am I reading too much into our culture? And on Facebook, I'm friends. I mentioned last week. I have kind of three schools of, of friends. I have my very liberal friends from high school. I have my very uh, conservative friends from the military who are not necessarily any sort of religious leaning. And then I have my Christian friends who fall into kind of both sort of camps. They, they're not necessarily their own unique camp. There are some Christians. There's like my, my Christian circle, but then there's, there's fringes of my Christian friends that will either fall extremely conservative uh, with political stuff, that, and then I have other Christian friends that fall extremely liberal. And so I asked this question. I said, hey, I'm going to moderate. There's going to be no debate on my wall. I just want to know what does it mean when somebody says I'm a spiritual person? What does it mean? And it was fascinating to me. I had, I had one friend who said, uh, you know, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that Christianity is the only route to heaven, to God. That there are many routes, and I've just selected this one path. It doesn't mean that others are wrong. I, others said, well, I just believe that, that there's a higher being, but we can't really know. And so I, I look out at the, uh, the mountains and the, the beautiful stuff, very articulate stuff. I really appreciated the input. I had one person said, I'm an atheist, yet I often I refer that I'm a spiritual person because I believe in other stuff. And I thought, that is fascinating. That, that, that there's this huge gamut of all of these people for the most part. I only had to delete about four people's comments to keep the peace. But... But, but it was fascinating to me to see that from, from these groups, these friends of mine who are normally terribly offended at the stuff that I put up, start surfacing that being spiritual is okay. Indeed, there, there is um, a spiritual world that we're okay with. And I'm okay with all of my friends that are Christians so long as they don't go as far as to tell me that I'm wrong. And then by the end of it, it's like, they're like, well, what are you doing this for? And it's like, oh, you really don't want to know. Like, I'd probably, you know, it, it, you just don't worry about it. I'm just curious. I'm doing a little research, you know, for, for Sunday. And so the first part here is do not believe every spirit. I think that most reasonable people acknowledge that there's a lot of spiritual stuff out there. Not everybody will say that, all, that, that some spiritual stuff is bad. But John makes it clear to those who follow Christ that we need to be very discerning when it comes to spiritual matters. He says, not just don't don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. He begins to say, listen, test them. I've heard this a bunch of different ways. And I before or maybe early in my Christian life, I'd hear sort of the more charismatic Christian friends of mine that were, 
they stub their toe and, and no offense anybody, but they, they're quick to, to blame it on the devil trying to trip them up or, or PowerPoint not working and say, no, it's Satan trying to trip up PowerPoint. And I'm like, well, it's PowerPoint. It's like this stuff has it just because we didn't prepare. doesn't mean that it's like Satan attacking us that we didn't, you know, um, and so I was never sort of in that category, but I'd hear these dear friends of mine who were more in the, the, the hyper spiritual, the hyper, oh, we got to test the spirits. And I, and, and they, when they were talking, I'd have in my mind that they'd have, you know, like it would swimming pool, when you test the chemicals that you test the water, then you put a couple drops, you t- shake it around and you're watching the meter. Like what sort of, what sort of spiritual tests are, are we giving to test the spirits? My background as a little kid, when I was far too young to watch it, was watching like Poltergeist. And that was like, I don't know who had the right mind let me watch that as 12 years old. But to me, this was like the spiritual. So if I see somebody on their belly that says, help me, that's a bad spirit. And if I see like happy stuff, it was just one of these things. Like, what's this test? And if we look at the context of this, we, we will see the test. And I remember today, this week even dialoguing over this. And I said, you know what? I'm, I'm preaching on this section. And, and certainly by the parameters that some of you said, I would offend you because you, you're okay with all sort of spirituality. You're okay with people believing the Bible so long as they don't tell me I'm wrong. And so I remember going, well, I probably will offend you because my goal is, is to teach what the Bible says. I have one dear friend who's a, he's, he's very liberal, but we have very good, like I love communicating with him. We can communicate without arguing. And he, and he gave me the admonition. He said, brother, don't worry about offending people. Just teach what it says. And I'm like, wait, but like, I like, I so appreciate you, brother. Like, cause I know that I, what I'm going to teach is going to go right in your face. And yet you're totally cool with it, you know? And, and my aim is not to offend, but my aim is also not to shy away if offense is caused. Uh, as Christians, we should, our, our number one priority shouldn't be to offend people. We want to love people. We want to care for people, but the Bible can be offensive. And so often when I offend people, Ecclesiastes was a good lesson for me. I love Ecclesiastes. I decided I like Ecclesiastes so much, I'm going to teach through it. And it was early in the, you know, you're trying to restart a church, trying to bring back life. Probably Ecclesiastes wasn't the, one of the more wiser books to start with, especially when you're going week by week and it takes a long time. And I remember there was a certain section when I got a bunch of, a bunch of people were very upset at me and I was getting multiple emails and I remember kind of going, okay, now I'm sorry that you were offended, but my number one question is, did I, did I teach the Bible incorrectly? And their complaint was no. I, I mean, I kind of laughed inside, but I shouldn't laugh, you know, but they're like, no, my complaint is that you're bringing it like to life. Too, too detailed, too, you're making it too understandable. And Ecclesiastes' whole point is to like drop the bottom so that you focus on who God is. And so I was always like, I'm very sorry you're offended by this, but I'm just doing, my, my, my role is to teach what the Bible says so that you can understand God's message. And so here, the Bible sort of sets this test that in our culture, 
I know I'm walking on, on very sensitive ground. But my aim isn't, my opinion doesn't count for anything. But the Bible, John, this dear, wise old man who walked with Jesus, he made it very clear. He says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, which we looked at one of those passages in 1 John 2, like the last section there. He said, there are many of us, they've gone out, they're deceiving you, they're trying to lead you astray. Don't believe every spirit, test them. You have to be on your guard. Don't just walk into family Christian bookstore and think that every book in here is sound. Family Christian bookstore is not owned by Christians. I hate to, just so you guys know, it's, it, they are non-Christian businessmen that see a market that, and they provide a lot of good books. And, and, but there's no theological sort of parameters of stuff that has to be sold there or in Barnes and Noble in the spirituality section. He says, be careful. And I, and I read this, I say, well, what's the test? What's the test? How do we know? And the test is really quite simple. First, he says, don't believe every spirit. Then he says, test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Verse 2. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So he comes with this very positive test. Any spirit, you want to know what's from God? This test. This is the jugular vein of Christianity. He says that the test is this confession, this proclamation of the mouth. And the test is that Jesus Christ, that in and of itself, is kind of part one. Because we, we kind of in our cultures tend to think of the, the, the term Jesus Christ as his first and last name. But it's Jesus and his title. The Messiah, Christ, simply is means Messiah, it's the Greek form of the Hebrew word for Messiah, that this is the promised Messiah that God told us about, that he came, that God came, and it also goes on to say that he has come and the flesh is from God, so that we see this, that that Christ came, 100% God, 100% man, the church here was facing Gnosticism, which was saying that, sure, Jesus came, but he wasn't fully man. He was simply a spirit. And this is a major doctrinal point. This confession of who is Jesus. He's the Messiah. He was 100% man, that God became man, walked the earth. And if the spirit confesses this, then it's of God. This is the litmus test. He goes on to say that every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is, it is coming and now is already in the world. So he presents there's this positive, this, this what do they confess? Do they confess Jesus is the Messiah, 100% man, he came in the flesh. But he also gives this sort of, if they don't confess silence isn't necessarily affirmation because there are plenty who will say, Oh, Jesus is a good guy. Or he's like, he was really a good teacher. Oh, well, well, do you, do you believe that he was the Messiah? Do you believe that he was God? Do you believe that he was both God and man? And he came to pay for the sins of the world. Then you start getting some retraction or you'll get spiritual stuff that has nothing to do 
with it, this proclamation. Doesn't say anything about it, but there's silence on the issue. And silence seems to be just as bad as positively identifying the wrong thing. As I, I recently, this is kind of a tangent sort of thing, but relates. I've, I've had this heel pain. You know, the church soccer team has given me plantar fasciitis. I, and it's a horrible, horrible sort of thing to deal with. And so finally through a, a meeting with somebody, I, not a meeting, it was like a lunch party for a kid that had been in a bad accident, like major, major accident. And there were a bunch of pastors that met for his birthday. And when I sat down, the father-in-law of this guy, right across from me, he says, oh, if you guys ever need acupuncture... He's this guy is amazing. And so my first reaction when I hear acupuncture is like, oh, you know, begin the, oh, the witch doctor. I'm like, oh, acupuncture, this is sort of wacky stuff. Like, this is no, you know, the story gets better. But so, but my curiosity, I start talking with the guy and I said, how does it work? You're like jam needles into people. And is it like, and he was not of the spiritual variety. He's like, well, these people would say this is what happens from the, from the Chinese school of thought. But this is what I believe happens through the process. And, and so I, we're going back and forth, kind of me just picking his brain. And then I finally say, oh, uh, let's just say somebody had plantar fasciitis. <laughs> is that something you could handle? And he's like, well, we could treat it. But he said something very gracefully. But what he said, he was trying to say that it would be terribly painful if you jammed a needle into your heel. And he said, I would treat that with like deep tissue massage. I'm like, oh, interesting. Okay, well, this is, I'll make sure I pass that to my friend, you know, kind of thinking. And I'm like, oh, then, you know, a few minutes goes by and I say, oh, um, how much would it cost? <laughs> you know, like just in case, you know, and then, and so then I end up calling the guy a few weeks later because I, my pain's not getting any it's better now but it 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 hadn't made any improvement and so he said oh you can meet me at this yoga studio he rents a room in this yoga studio and i remember studying this on my brain i walk into the yoga studio and there's like just weirdness like it was just spiritual there's like pictures of jesus that look like he stepped out of the vidal Sassan, uh, salon and and his hair was flowing perfect condition smiling with somebody else's picture right next to it i don't know who the somebody else was and i just remember kind of walking into this place going oh this is sort of weird i'm like what am i doing here like somebody from the church is going to see me walking into this yoga place and i'm like but my heels hurting so bad and then i go up there and i start talking to him and you know he's like no i just rent the room we're trying to get our own place and he's like yeah i kind of like i try to meet people at the front and kind of whisk them in or sometimes take them to the back because people get a little weirded out in here and i'm like yeah you're telling me and uh but it's like it's it's everywhere, the spiritual stuff. And John makes it clear to us. Listen, guys, be super careful. Don't, don't, don't walk out into this world and think just because it's spiritual, just because it has sort of a, uh, you know, a, a, a spiritual sort of sweet flavor to it that it's okay. Be discerning because people get led astray, not with boldness, but with subtlety, with, with imitation, with, with things that appear close to the truth. And he warns them. And I just, I get this sense that this is just a, a, an older pastor who's seen everything he's done kind of with subtlety and kind of beaten around the bush. He says, test the spirits. If they don't proclaim that Jesus is Lord 
careful. Don't, don't go down that road. And, and as, I, as I read these first three verses, I get kind of concerned. I'm going to this yoga place. I'm going, oh, man, it's just like there's just evil everywhere out here. And how, how, do, I not, how do I not get on, off course? How do I protect myself? I'm responsible for, for teaching a bunch of people. And, and all sort through history, we see pastors led astray. And if you're super sensitive, I, I could see you just kind of walking through this world saying, well, I don't want to go into there because that's that. Or I don't want to go there because I might get led astray. I don't, be, I don't want to go into Vons because I saw in this section there's like the religious candles that have a bunch of weird stuff. So, I, so we just want to avoid everything. And I think in verse 4, he, he recognizes the fear that he might be putting and he wants to assure them. He says, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that it, who is in you than he who is in the world. Oh, man. Just when I'm reading this thinking, oh, man, I like, I just, I need to go become a hermit or a monk and go lock myself out into the middle of nowhere so that I don't contaminate myself. Very different from the message of the Bible. Jesus, on his very last night in John chapter 20, when he, he, he breathes the spirit on them, and he says, as the Father has sent me into the world, so send I you. But you're not of the world. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. I've, I've commissioned you as my ambassadors to go out and to be light. And he gives this great affirmation of greater is he that is in you than it is in the world. Don't be afraid. And this is a great verse to memorize. To, when you find yourself, like you, you have a Buddhist friend or something, I have a family member that invites you to go to their wedding or celebration. I, I'll go to those things. But I'll go and I get this like feeling of sadness. But, but I find myself greater that is he that is in you than it is in the world. And I'm here to share the good news. But who is this he that is in you? Well, if we go back right before this section and the very end of chapter three, this is how you know what he's talking about. He says, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. His two main points, believe upon Jesus, love one another. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know that this, that he abides in us by the spirit he has given us. He says, as you've believed upon Jesus, you not only abide in him, but he abides in you. He's given us the spirit, his spirit as this down payment, this assurance that we're walking with him, that we're secure. He refers back to this in chapter four, verse four, when he says, but you are of, you are of God, little children and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who's in the world. Don't lose heart. Lean upon him. Trust in him. Seek him. Walk with him. Know that he's in you. It doesn't matter. You can go to these places of wherever it is in our culture where they're not professing Christ. But you you lean upon him. I'll, I'll never forget. You guys met Krista who was serving in the Middle East. And as she went to the Middle East and made her first trip back after being uh, in UAE for, for a couple of years. 
She's studied the Quran. She's, she's dialogued and debated with, with um, Muslims in that country, but very cautiously. And when she came back, she said that as I would study the Quran, one of the fellow workers with me would always say that for every like 15 minutes that you read the Quran, you better spend 30 minutes reading the Bible, following it, so that you you stay close to him and not not get yourself deluded off track. And so he tells us, lean upon him. Don't know that there's all kind of spiritual stuff happening out there. Test the spirits, but know that as you walk with him, he is greater than anything that you're encountering. He then turns his attention to the them. He says, they, those apart from Christ, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world and the world listens to them. So we see this test of this 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 confession, this this confession of who Jesus is. But then there's the language that they speak. And he says, those of the world are going to speak like the world because they're they're of the world. The world would listen to them. This verse is one of those verses that has always jumped out at me when I, as a pastor, I'm not a counselor. I mean, I can counsel, but, you know, I'm not that good. I, I tend to lean more of my SEAL background. Tell people just to stop it, you know, for those of you that know the video, just just don't do it. You're destroying your family. Just cut it out. Be nice. Like, I'm, you're too old for me to, like, lean you over my lap and give you a spanking. Like, but that's what you need. Just cut it out. But then the thing that concerns me is when, when I have people who have trusted in Christ and they, they encounter problems. And they do go to counseling. And God blessed counselors because I couldn't do it. But then they're a believer and then they go to a secular counselor. And then they expect to, to have wisdom. And sure, there's counselors that can give wisdom. Like, I'm not saying that all counselors are bad. But, but the big picture of things, if you're seeking counsel from somebody that isn't anchored in the scriptures, that their, their understanding of how they lead you is far different from somebody that doesn't have this. I've seen marriage counselors say, oh, well, you're not happy anymore. Well, people change. Go ahead and move on. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible basically says, to, to paraphrase, is suck it up. Humble yourself before Christ. Do what you're supposed to do. It's not contingent on the other person. If the person leaves you, they leave you. There's nothing you can do. But in your heart, you're supposed to work it out. There are very vast differences in, in counsel from somebody that's coming from uh, this orientation of, no, God created me. We're going to give account to him. And so how I counsel you as one who will also stand before God is vastly different than a person who, who, who navigates by way of feelings. And so we need to be cautious. Who do we seek counsel from? Where do you get your guidance from? He says, those that are of the world, that they will speak as the world, and the world listens to them. I see a but here. There's no but. But we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. As John's speaking, if you've trusted in Christ, you know God. And as we, the apostles, are, are pinning the scripture, as we're leading the church, 
We are of God and he who knows God listens to the things that we're saying. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. How does this go over in our culture? That there is a the truth. Truth is not subjective. That God has revealed clearly his message. Jesus is the one who said, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. This is exclusive. And when that, that friend wrote on there, well, I, I just like, I believe my own thing. I'm okay with my friends that believe the Bible. But I don't like it when they judge me and tell me that I'm wrong. And I'm like, wait a minute, aren't you telling me that I'm wrong? Like, aren't you, aren't you like doing the very same thing to me? Because you're saying, well, I can believe whatever I want, but your belief has to conform with what I'm saying. And, and you can't have two mutually exclusive truths that contradict one another. And as I read this passage, this, this last verse that we are of God, he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It reminds me very much, if you'll turn with me to the gospel of John. And in John chapter 10, Jesus is sharing with his, his apostles here. This is the, the, the good shepherd passage. And Jesus looks at them and he says, truly, truly, or verily, verily. What I'm about to tell you, he's saying this is, this is absolute. This, you need to get this. That when I see truly, truly, this is when you're in school and the, the teacher in reviewing for the final says, you guys might want to pay attention to this one. You might, you might possibly see this next week on the exam. Just take note. That, that, that's what I hear when I hear Jesus say, truly, truly. This is like, hey, pay, pay close attention. He says, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger will simply not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were, which he had been saying to them. So Jesus tells this parable, and I love John kind of gives us this. When we were listening to this, we didn't really kind of, he was speaking in a way that we didn't necessarily get what he was putting down. But then he goes on and he explains more in verse 7. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, guys, this is going to be on the test. It's super important for you to understand this because my time is short here. You're going to be leading the church. I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. Anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. He, 
He goes on to say that he's the good shepherd, that he'll lay down his life for the sheep, that there are many more not currently of his flock, and he's going to go to them. And Jesus says, they'll know my voice. It's important that we know his voice, that we study his word. See, uh, I'm okay with Bibles that have red letter print, but don't think that the black letters are less important because all of the words are of God. And this is his voice to us. And it's important that the more we know the scripture and it's a lifelong process, the more we put it into our heart to see counterfeits are so much easier to see. Jesus gives this warning. There are those that are going to try to to jump the fence and try to kill and steal the sheep. You stay safe by walking close with me, listening to my voice. And where we're going to end is if you'll turn with me to second Timothy chapter four and in second timothy chapter four this is the apostle paul's very last writing he wrote second timothy from a pit in the ground before his execution very much this this always reminds me of his last will and testament his final charge to young timothy this young upcoming pastor that paul had had led him to the Lord, had discipled him, and then basically entrusted him the ministry to care for the early church. And the last thing he says to Timothy is this. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Can you imagine young Timothy reading those words? Uh, he may have got, I don't know that off the top of my head, he, Paul may have been dead by the time he received this letter. And he says, Timothy, what I'm about to say, I'm charging you in the presence of God and, and Christ Jesus and by his a king, kingdom. What I'm about to say to you is serious. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke. I mean, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience. That always jumps out at me as a pastor. Great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. And when I see Paul say this to Timothy, it would be, I think, 20 years, if my math is right, that 20 years in front of this, that John would be writing First John, that they were told by Jesus that people would be led astray, that false doctrine would come in. Paul, as he goes, he says to Timothy, you stand firm. There's all kind of spirits out there. You need to discern the truth. You need to stay grounded to the word and proclaim the word of God to people. 
Because the time will come when they don't want to hear. They just want their ears tickled. They want to come to church and, and have a little attaboy. You're doing great. God loves you. Go enjoy the rest of your week. But he says words like reprove. Reproving's not fun. Rebuking, exhort. Like, like that you need to shepherd them. And when I drive around our nation, when I look at Europe, there are many churches in Europe and the United States. We don't really have the museums. But you just drive into Escondido, go downtown, go to these huge buildings. That, that once there was a thriving church there, that the, the nation was reaching our fellow countrymen, that, that people were coming to repentance and understanding who they were in light of God. But now these buildings are being converted into taverns. They're being converted into gyms. They're being converted into to monuments that you can go and explore the great architecture. And why is it that these museums exist today that, that were once great buildings where the church used to meet? Because the church isn't the building. The church is the people. And I think it's because as they were proclaiming the word, they were growing. But then people didn't like hearing that. And then you have pastors saying, well, well, we got to kind of give on these points because to say this or that, that's from the Bible, that's terribly offensive. So let's not speak on that anymore. The, you know, Joel Olstein, the happiest Christian in the world, that's always, he refuses to speak on sin. Well, that's somebody riding on the Titanic listening to fine symphony music as they're going under. And I think that these churches are going, have gone under or are going under because there isn't a faithfulness to teaching. What happens is you start giving on points. You say, well, ah, this is a, this is dated material. What applied back then doesn't, we're different now. And there's, there's some truth. There's, the world has changed, but the principles, the message is the same. But as we give on these points, eventually you get so watered down. That, that you just begin to look like the secular group that meets for feeling good. And then the church dies because the message isn't being proclaimed. And as I read this text, it's a reminder for me to take this same reminder that as long as I'm the pastor here, that the word will be taught. Uh, I don't want Praise the Lord. I mean, amen. That's, uh, and if I don't fire me, get rid of me, leave, go somewhere else. But the Bible's the word of God. I don't want to be offensive. I want to love people. But I won't neglect the word of God for the sake of not being offended because we need to be offended at times. I know that I needed to be offended by God to stop me in my tracks and change my life so that I could come to salvation. And I hope that all of us will be wise as we go about our lives that we'll be in the word daily, that we'll be reading, that we'll be growing so that when we're out, Amongst our world, we'll be able to discern error from truth. And that when we see error, we'll be able to, with the grace of God and his kindness and his love, be able to share what the truth is. So that people, on their judgment day, will have what they need to face God. We need Christ. And he's made it clear what he expects of us. But it takes our being in the word, our hearing his voice and knowing him. And Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you, Lord, uh, for the work that you're doing here in our midst. And Father, I pray for us as a church, Lord, that you would 
Lord, help us to heed your words. Father, help us to have wisdom and discernment as we navigate our culture where spirituality is okay. But proclaiming the Bible can be a little bit offensive at times. So, Father, we need wisdom. We need your help, Lord. Father, help us to hear your voice. Father, we pray that you would affirm us, Lord. Give us the assurance to know that greater is he that is in us, that is in the world. And, Father, if there are those that haven't received you as Savior, Father, I pray that you would, Lord, give them sort of anxiety, discouragement, whatever it takes, Lord, so that they would ultimately turn to you in faith, that they would receive the spirit that is promised, that you would dwell in them and they would dwell in you. And then then they would have the hope to know greater is he that is in you, that is in the world. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for our country, Lord. We pray those that have trusted in Christ as Savior would stand, that we would be lights in this dark world. Fathers, I watched the news this week and to see uh, the nation of Israel suffering uh, great attacks. Father, we pray that you would turn um, just the Israeli people to Christ. Father, that you would continue to, to work through that nation. And Lord, I, I, I hear the words of that dear Jewish man who fought, was a follower of Christ in the Hezekiah Tunnel saying that they're trying to solve spiritual matters through politics. And so, Father, we pray just for that region, Lord, that you would do a work there, that you would work through the believers that exist there. We pray just for the safety and security of this great nation. And we lift this up to you in Christ's good name. Amen.